you very much to um, Carol, Karen, and to Terry of the um, Higher Education Policy uh, Network for this kind invitation. And also, as ever, thanks to um, Helen, uh, Francois, Franco, Katie, Rob, Emma, all the team at um, SRHE. It's always such a pleasure to be here. And I want to talk about today the competition fetish in relation to innovation. We are often told by, by government, uh, by the corporate world, by international organizations like the OECD and the World Bank that higher education needs to be more innovative. Um, we are also told that one of the very huge and a major driver for innovation is competition. If we all compete with each other, higher education as a whole will become um, innovative. Indeed, competition has been positioned as such an important driver that I have referred to it as the competition fetish. And what do I mean by that? Uh, and what is the real impact of competition on innovation? These are the central questions that I want to address in my presentation today. So in order to understand how competition impacts on innovation, I want to first begin by describing why do we talk about competition as a fetish, what makes it so very powerful, and really what is the real impact of competition on, on innovation. Okay. So in order to understand higher education uh, as a competition fetish, I draw from firstly anthropology, secondly from political economy, and thirdly from psychoanalysis. If we look at anthropology, the fetish has the desire to make our dreams come true. The fetish can also protect us from harm. From political economy, we know that the fetish screens the underlying relations of production. The fetish takes relationships between people and makes it a connection between things. From psychoanalysis, we find a twofold displacement. The fetish conceals while giving meaning to a substitute. The fetish has the power to deny. The fetish has the power to invoke fear. And the fetish has the power to enthrall us. So if we borrow from these meanings, higher education can be seen to be trapped in a kind of magical thinking which fetishizes competition. There is a modern day magical belief that competition will provide the solution to all the problems in higher education and that competition will actually drive innovation. So we know in higher education there are many, many varieties of competition. And I want to just talk about four varieties of competition. And these varieties of competition displace one another. 
they reinforce one another, um, and they work together in, in many ways. So the first competition that I want to talk about is what Pierre Bourdieu has termed the struggle for scientific capital. Scholars have long engaged in various forms of competition, including the symbolic uh, destruction of rival scholarship. We know all about the scholarship wars. We know about the big war between Basil Bernstein and Pierre Bourdieu. And this competition, this competition about rival scholarship is still very dominant in higher education, but it is mediated by other forms of competition. So the second form of competition that I want to talk about is the competition in relation to geopolitical rivalry. David Harvey has asserted that we live in an era of the new imperialism. Dominant Western states have been joined by rapidly rising powers such as China. And of course, higher education stands at the center of these struggles. Firstly, higher education has been transformed into a global commodity for economic advantage. And secondly, higher education has been deployed for global influence. And often, the political and the economic go together. For example, Eva Hartman's work tells us that the export of Bologna to Africa and to Latin America does two things. Firstly, it increases Europe's market share in these regions, but it also increases Europe's sphere of influence. The third type of competition that we all live through every day is government-sponsored competition. These are generally termed excellence policies. For example, the research excellence framework and the teaching excellence framework. The core political aim here is to identify world-class universities to compete on a world stage. Funding is diverted to these universities to provide positional advantage for global competition. The fourth type of competition is status competition, particularly ranking. And we know, of course we know, that rankings do not measure holistic performance and that rankings undermine institutional diversity. But as Simon Marginson has noted, a significant number of universities across the world strive for membership in global rankings, even when they have absolutely no chance of being featured. I want to look now at what, what is it that constitutes the competition fetish? What is it that makes it so powerful? After all, the fetish is really an inanimate object. It's an inanimate object until something gives it life. So what is it that actually breathes life into the fetish? And here, in keeping with the fetish metaphor, I want to introduce the term shaman. So what are the shamanic actors, what are the shamanic structures 
that have the power to constitute and to um, reproduce competition. There are many shamanic actors and structures, but for the purposes of today, I will focus on three. So firstly, government. Government is a key shamanic actor in many countries. The competition state is rising. This is a state that has abandoned public welfare. Instead, it focuses on returning market forces in international settings. What we see also is increasing articulation between the state and the market. So no longer do the state and the market operate separately, but they operate together. In general, governments create the conditions for the quasi-market, and at the same time, market mechanisms are deployed to attain state goals. Second, international organizations play a shamanic role. The World Bank embeds national competition through structural adjustment programs, conditions attached to loans, and prescriptions for what the World Bank calls good governance. Developing countries and low-income countries in general are urged to deregulate their higher education and open up to foreign and for-profit providers. The same with the OECD. The OECD acts as a key shamanic actor. The OECD, through its global assessment, its benchmarking, its policy comparisons, all of that act as giant projection screens to urge policymakers to move education reform in a certain direction. Let's take the example of Sweden and, and Norway. There was at one time when these sorts of countries were positioned as role models for the rest of the world. However, now the egalitarian principles of these countries have been challenged by neoliberal prescriptions. So through coercive social constructions, these countries have now been positioned by the OECD as countries in need of reform. So that's a very, very major shift. And third, global corporations have become very potent political actors. They have a clear agenda. They push as deeply as they can to open up public sector higher education to for-profit provision. <coughs> but we don't just have shamanic actors and structures outside the university. They also sit within the university. Some university leaders and managers have become what Jürgen Enders and I have termed audit market intermediaries. At their most extreme, they prize open the university, they translate and they reinforce competition into the very heart of the university. At the same time, there are many university leaders, probably not many university leaders, but probably quite a few university managers who actually protect the academic heartland from the most corrosive effects of competition. 
And finally, of course, we as faculty and students play our part. Competition is so powerful because it borrows legitimacy from scientific capital. Academics are seduced and are coerced. Who doesn't look at their Google Scholar citations? Competition is protected by the elite because it replicates everything that puts them at the most advantaged position. In this way, the academic elite is incorporated to store protest and to help with the pacification of the sector as a whole. And of course, students in their reconceptualization as consumers also activate consumer and competition uh, mechanisms. So these are the actors, but what is it that actually makes competition so powerful? And here I want to turn to the idea which is another anthropological concept and that's the ritual. Shamans perform rituals to exert power over beliefs, over desires, but also over emotions. The anthropologist Pierre Smith has analyzed the importance of what he calls mind snares. It's like a trap, a trap that catches an animal, but it's a trap that, that captures the mind. And he talks away about the way in which the mind is trapped by rituals. He writes that instead of a clear and an exact meaning, the ritual involves a process which stimulates and keeps the inferential processes idle. This allows the mind to slip and fall into the trap that was set for it. So what are the mind snares of competition in higher education? The first one is that competition is absolutely natural. This is a simplistic conception of Darwinian natural selection and it's fused with what Bourdieu has called doxa. This is an unquestionable orthodoxy that operates as if it were the objective truth. Competition is common sense. Who would be so insane as to question competition? Competition is also an act of heresy because competition, especially market competition, is central to democracy. The more areas of human life that we subsume under market competition, the more democratic we are and the more civilized we are. Okay, so if you do a lead table of civilization, however you define civilization and human rights and democracy and untrammeled market competition, it would be interesting to see which countries go where in, into that lead table. The second mind snare is that competition is legitimate. Competition is equal. Competition depends on making believe that all participants have an equal opportunity in the race. There's some very interesting work by Riyadh Shah Jahan and Clara Morgan on the OECD and a halo. And what they demonstrate 
is that most global competitions are rigged. They demonstrate that the OECD, in attempting its HALO, it's, that's the assessment of higher education learning outcomes, what it does is it creates spaces of equivalence across countries that are very different geographically, politically, economically and culturally. But each country is universalized, it's delocalized, and most importantly, it is depoliticized so that they can be presented as legitimate um, areas of, of comparison. So less powerful nations and less powerful universities have to mimic all of these characteristics even when they have no chance of winning. What about the more traditional competition that most of us believe in, and that is meritocracy? So, of course, meritocracy is the cornerstone of a university. But even here, Bourdieu has shown us how meritocracy obscures economic and social inequalities. As Littler shows us, meritocracy also endorses a very linear hierarchical system. The top cannot exist without the bottom. Raymond Williams has argued that the meritocratic ladder, he, he looks at meritocracy, he uses the symbol of, of the ladder, and he basically says what's interesting about the ladder is you can only climb up alone. You cannot climb up a ladder collectively. And what Raymond Williams says is that meritocracy sweetens the poison of hierarchy. Meritocracy appears to be rewarding purely for talent rather than money or birth. But actually, meritocracy encapsulates all of that within the way in which it, it works. <coughs> the third mind snare is that competition is very efficient and that competition leads to innovation. But what evidence do we have that competition in all areas of higher education leads to innovation? What we find is a lot of isomorphism. We find a lot of countries and universities mimicking each other. And are there problems that competition cannot solve? Are there problems that competition actually creates. The fourth mind snare works through emotions. Katja Brogger, and I really, really um, rate her work very highly, <coughs> shows us how competition can produce an affective politics of naming, of shaming, and faming. It is the fear of shame and the thrill of fame that ignites in all of us a strong competitive desire. In addition, it is now a moral imperative to enter the competition. Academics and students are encouraged to pursue their own self-interest and maximize their own individual gains. <coughs> I want to turn now to look at some consequences for innovation. 
So the big question for me is always, but what do we mean by innovation? And when you look across government departments, policy, um, policy documents, websites, uh, when you look at business, innovation often means something very simple. A new idea, a new product that is then implemented and that produces a change. But what sort of change? And who and whom does such a change actually benefit? And these are the kind of key assumptions within the whole innovation literature that is hardly ever uh, touched upon. And so when I look at the consequences for innovation, I want to look at who innovation uh, benefits. So firstly, I want to look at higher education as a system. When we look at higher education as a system, we can see, obviously, that all the dominant forms of competition are rigged towards the elite. Look at the research excellence framework and the teaching excellence framework in, in England. Who are the winners and, and who are the losers there? And the battle for world-class university status is not a battle that is fought between systems of higher education it is a battle that is fought between the most elite universities in the most powerful or rising powerful countries. And what's quite interesting is that we, if we look at a country like Germany, which has now also entered the whole excellence contest, and Germany has come from a tradition where it was the higher education system was non-hierarchical or not as stratified as our systems in the Anglo-Saxon world. And what their research has shown is that the German system is becoming more stratified, teaching is becoming less important, and there is a huge administrative burden. So in highly stratified systems, there is no downward trickle. What there is, is an upward spiral of resources, and status. The elite is consolidated while absolutely everything else is, is undermined. What this then results in is what I have called the combined and uneven development of higher education. And what do I mean by this? I mean that the high status, well-resourced universities in poorer countries become intimately connected to the global nodes of higher education. At the same time, there are more and more under-resourced universities in rich countries which recruit the most disadvantaged students in the country, but they are detached from power and confined to their locality. I'm sure you all know this very interesting study by Pascarella and Terranzini on uh, where they looked at higher education in the States. And I think it was something like, what does college teach students? Or, and they are solid, non-lefty, um, very empirically based researchers. And what they found is that most of the innovation in terms of education occurs not in the elite Ivy League universities, but in the community colleges. 
And what they found is that although when you look at innovation in education that's occurring in a certain sector, the resources, the focus, the spotlight always remains on, on the Ivy League. And what they've called for is they've called for public policy to highlight and to fund the institutions that give the most value to the colleges and to students and communities from the most disadvantaged sectors of our society. So where does innovation occur? Does it occur at the elite? Does it occur in the system as a whole? And who benefits from, from innovation are really key questions that we should ask. And of course, when we live, like in England, in a very highly stratified competitive system, innovation <coughs> is in the first place to provide competitive advantage to the institution, to the university, either in the market or in status wars, example ranking. Innovation serving the public good or the commonwealth of our societies happens, but it happens more because people are pushing against the dominant forms of competition. If we look at world-class universities, world-class universities are often embedded in global networks with multinational corporations. They're not embedded in national innovation systems. So the benefits of innovation in terms of world-class universities gets distributed to a global elite. In addition, the argument is that highly stratified systems will be the best route to innovation. That's the argument in the Anglo-Saxon <coughs> world. But actually, this argument is hugely undermined when we look at the how successful universities in Finland are and in Germany are in terms of contributing to national innovation. And those systems, particularly in Finland, are non-stratified and relatively non-hierarchical. And I'm sure Jan will tell us a bit more about that in the questions. In terms of research, of course, we have the rest. And scientific capital is now jostled by other government excellence contests. And I won't talk too much about that because I know Ian will be talking about that. Um, in terms of teaching uh, students as consumers, what does that do to innovation? We know from all the research that that does not produce uh, more innovative teaching in any, any sense. Students become... Uh, they lose responsibility for their learning, they have a sense of entitlement, and they become more instrumental. And academics become more consumerist. We've done a very recent study which shows that <coughs> academics are engaging much more now in safe teaching. So, I want to spend the last four minutes <laughs> I'm talking about what are the factors that might mediate the competition fetish. So in his book, The Moral Economy, Samuel Bowles makes the case that if we only have policy that appeals to our self-interest, it cuts out intrinsic motivation 
and actually it causes institutions and society to work in a much, much less effective and innovative way. Um, probably maybe one more thing to say is it's very interesting to look at the work of Elena Ostrom. She was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Economics. And what she documented is thousands and thousands of cases of people who were collaborating and not competing. The usual behavior that people give us, especially economists, is of two communities living by a lake. These communities will fish the lake until it is dry. And what Elena's work shows us is that actually in Nepal, in Spain, Japan, Indonesia, in very many countries, people are actually not the greedy, selfish actors of standard economic theory. She showed us how people come together to decide on quotas of fish, on using fish nets and on not catching young fish. They developed innovative rules, mechanisms of trust and sanctions without the state and without the market. And I think this is a very, very good example of a democratic innovation that leads to important outcomes in terms of equity and sustainability. Do I have two minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes. And if we look at, at higher education, our day-to-day -day life shows hundreds of examples of compassion, of courage and collaboration. Even though we are pushed every day to be more selfish and to be more competitive. And I want to end by just two or three interesting examples. The first one is universities in Colombia. The research-intensive universities in Colombia have come together to develop new research and new pedagogical programs to really contribute to peace in the country. They have brought in the young people who were guerrillas, who were in the mountains and fighting in, in guerrilla warfare, and they transformed their universities in order to incorporate these young people and contribute to peace. Nelson Mandela University in South Africa has developed an innovative university-wide humanistic curriculum. This is a curriculum that aims to overturn the ravages of apartheid and predatory um, capitalism. And of course, there's the cooperative universities, and that probably gives me a nice place to stop so Mike can continue the story. Thank you very much. Thank you.